Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and this week my guest is Damien Hughes, organisational psychologist and author of books about leadership and high performance culture within some of the world's most successful businesses and sports organisations, including Barcelona Football Club and Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson. You'll probably know him now as the co-host of one of the UK's top podcasts, which he presents with Jake Humphreys, the high performance podcast featured incredible guests like Dame Kelly Holmes, Joe Malone to Chris Hoy, Matthew McConaughey, Chris Voss and Tim Peake. We discussed how establishing your non-negotiables can help remove ambiguity from setting goals, managing your time and ensuring you're aligned with the people you're working with. We also covered how to get over the sense that when you're in the middle of a project, everything can look like it's not working as well as why being crystal clear on the outcome you're aiming for will help you with establishing the small steps you need to take every day to help you get there. Damien was a fantastic guest who was very generous with his time and insights. He's also got a real talent for breaking down potentially complex challenges into easily understood and practical advice. So please enjoy listening, and if you've not already heard it, check out his show and also his book, which is released tomorrow, Thursday the 9th of December. As always, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast and if you enjoy it, please give it a rating. Also, check out my newsletter via the links in the show notes for more analysis and insights on the changing world of work. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Damien Hughes. I started by asking him whether as a result of his many conversations with some of the most successful people in business, sport and culture, he's been able to identify a single definition of high performance. I think that's a really smart first question and that's not because that's the first question we ask on the podcast where we open every interview we do with what is your definition of high performance and the reason I think it's a really smart way of opening it for yourself Ollie is that we haven't had a single consistent definition that's come back at us from over a hundred interviewees now um for some people, it's consistency. For some people, it's doing the right thing when nobody else is watching. For others, it's about winning uh, is their definition of it. So I haven't heard one consistent answer. The one that resonates most with me, though, actually came from, um, it was a little bit incongruous where we stumbled across it. It wasn't actually in the interview. But we sat down with Phil Neville in his hotel that he owns opposite Old Trafford, Hotel Football. And uh, it was in that period when um, lockdown was easing a little bit. And as we were chatting with it, I was chatting with Phil about the fact that he'd opened his hotel up for free for NHS workers. And uh, I just commended him on it. I said it was a really lovely thing to do. And he used a remark that felt like a light bulb being switched on in my head where he said to me, he said, oh, thanks. He said, well, you've just got to do the best you can in the moment you're in with the resources you've got. And he said, and that's all we did. And I went, yeah. sorry, Phil, just go back and say that again for me if you would. And he went, well, you've got to do the best you can with the resources you've got in the moment you're in. And that, to me, just felt like the perfect definition of high performance because it's, it, it acknowledges that we all start from different places that we're all, we all have different levels of talent, resources, um, contacts. We all are in a, our own moment. We're not racing against anybody else. And it's about then giving your absolute all in that particular moment. And that, to me, just seemed like a really apt but pretty neat definition of it. So 
that's my definition. But as I say, we haven't had a consistent one yet from uh, from any of our interviewees. Well, it resonates with me because I think if I were to try and define high performance, it probably means different things at different moments in my life. <laughs> because Absolutely. at the moment, high performance means operating on a few hours sleep, uh, broken night sleep because I've got a two-year-old, and then wow. trying to get up and do as good a job as possible um, for the clients I'm working with. And, uh, you know, that's tricky. Well, that's a brilliant example of it, though, Ollie, because, I mean, congratulations, by the way, on managing to to operate on such little sleep. But having been there and done it, I know how tough it is, but... That's the point that 10 years ago was a different moment. What you know now is different resources. So you doing the best you can on two hours sleep in that moment is high performance. You know, and then maybe with eight hours sleep, it's a different moment. You've got different resources there. So giving your best there might look different in that case. And that's why I think it allows flexibility for wherever we are rather than just have some fixed point that says if you hit this target that makes you a high performer well why would that be in any way accurate or motivating or inspiring for anybody if you feel that you're miles away from that i think it's interesting on the podcast and i'm sure you've reflected on this that there are clearly some individuals who not only not only have had to sacrifice parts of their life in order to achieve and you know reach the top of their chosen profession, but actually recognize the selfishness which it takes. I remember hearing Stephen Hendry say that. You know, he yeah. acknowledged that, you know, he he his primary objective was to be the best snooker player in the world. And it required sacrificing everything else, including his family ultimately. Yeah. And it can, I think, sometimes be difficult to look at those types of people and think, well, actually, maybe that's the only way you can do it. But it's yeah. not, is it? I mean, it's and it's again, it's based on individual personalities. Well, again, yeah. I mean, I think that's. I think an important point is that not like is seek to learn rather than seek to have an opinion on somebody. So seek to empathise with them. So Stephen Hendry's decision of being so singularly focused on being the, the most dominant snooker player of all time was his definition of high performance. But that doesn't mean that we have to share that. You know, you can, and that again goes back to the original answer that uh, that we started this with: that being a high performance dad, being a high performance partner, might be your definition of what real success is in your life, and that's great. That's not for anyone to make a judgment on. That's for you to define, and then remove any ambiguity from your priorities around that. And I think so. If you take the Stephen Hendry example, and we say right. Let's remove the judgment bit, but let's look at what can I learn from that without necessarily wanting to be the world's best snooker player. And you go, what he's very clear of is the just the lack of ambiguity in his world that is stripped out any noise that says, this is my focus and this is what I'm going after because this is what makes me happier than anybody else. And I think when you have a really clear uh, focus and a lack of ambiguity on that, that allows you then to start to make priorities in terms of your life and your decisions. That how many of us, and I put myself in this boat, uh, Ollie, that often we we try to be a high performer in too many different aspects. We try to be a high performing dad and yet high performing in business. So when you should be reading your kids' bedtime stories, you're thinking about the call that or the email that you've got to make. So actually, you're doing neither. So you're half-hearted in both of them. So that ambiguity can often create 
dysfunction and underperformance. Whereas I think for all of us, if we're clear about what our definition is, and then we have a really clear set of non-negotiables standards, and we and then we can give a priority to our decision making. That again is a really great trait that we can learn from Stephen Hendry without necessarily yeah. having to aspire to uh, to to achieve the same things as him. You mentioned non-negotiables there. You usually ask people at the end of your conversations what their non-negotiables are. Have you got your own non-negotiables? Yeah, definitely. So the reason we ask that question, the non-negotiables, is again, it's almost this idea of being really clear about the standards that you have. And what we find is that... Um, pretty much every high performer, whether that's an individual or whether I've been into high-performing cultures, there's almost a set of standards that they just say, we're not prepared to compromise on these. And then what that allows people to do is to make a commitment. So if you, the etymology of a word like commitment says, for you to commit to do something, that means that you make a choice to go after it, but equally you make a choice to sacrifice other aspects of your life. So... The thing that all our high performers do is they're really transparent to say, if you want to be a part of this, these are the rules of the game that you're going to play by. So you give people that transparency to then say to them, do you want to make a commitment to come with us for it? So that's why we ask around um, non-negotiables, but the rule is you can only have three because three is enough that is practical and useful. So to answer the question in terms of mine, yeah, um, I do have them and Mine have sort of emerged through trial and error, mainly error, if I'm honest. (laughs) But as I've sort of uh, gone through, the three that I have are, the first one is kindness. And that starts with being kind to myself. Um, And that's been learned in the most painful way possible, that I don't always feel I have been particularly kind to myself. I feel I've been relentless with a bit of a work ethic. I've not always been, when I've made a mistake, I've sort of, castigated and beat myself up for a long period of time afterwards. And there's been two occasions where I found myself uh, just teetering on the edge of um, sort of physical exhaustion. And on each of those occasions, I found myself in hospital with quite serious illness. So uh, the last time it happened to me was about 16 years ago where I contracted meningitis. And it was literally because I'd allowed myself to get run down. And... I I have a son now who's 12 and I'd sort of gone through this experience of finding myself in hospital and was sort of paying lip service to it. But where where this non-negotiable came from was when my son was born, somebody asked me the question of um, how would you feel if somebody was speaking to your son in the way that you speak to yourself? Yeah. And it sort of held a, a mirror up to me to make me just hear how cruel and unforgiving that internal narrative that I was conducting was. And it sort of left me feeling quite bereft, if I'm honest, that I thought I'd Mm. I'd be despondent if somebody spoke to my son or my daughter in that way. So I thought I needed to role model behaviours and the arrival of my son was a good prompt to start role modelling kindness. And what I found is the kinder you are to yourself, the more capacity it allows you to be kind and tolerant and empathetic to other people. So that's uh, my first non-negotiable. My second one is uh, to try and have fun. And this comes from a reflection of um, when I, if you go back to 
your school days, Ollie, same as mine. And I was to say to you, tell me the best lessons you enjoyed. Tell me the lessons where you felt you learned most. I'll have you a bet you were having fun in it. There was an engagement with the teacher. There was an element of laughter and levity. And they're the lessons that you remember most because you learn most and you learn most in them. So I figured that sort of having fun and trying to look for the enjoyment in a situation is a non-negotiable because if you if you're gonna if you're gonna do anything, you've got to have some element of enjoyment rather than see it as a drudge. Yeah. yeah. And then the third one is um, it comes back from. Some advice my dad gave me when I was a kid, when my dad said, if nobody would notice your absence, that would tell you that your presence hasn't made a difference. So it's almost in every situation you go into, see if you can make a positive contribution towards that into that situation or that environment. So whether that's me and you chatting here and I'll give you the best and most honest answers I can to try and make a positive difference or whether it's when I'm at home with uh, my children sort of listen to them and try and empathise with them or whether it's working with teams or businesses, try and make a positive contribution is, again, another yeah. non-negotiable one. If I don't feel that I can do that, it makes me then question whether I'm in the right place. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. What are yours? Oh, it's good. It's a good question. Kindness is really important to me. Being curious as well. If I'm not excited to find out more about something then again, I'd question whether it's worth spending my time time doing that. Having fun is definitely important to me. So something, uh, you know, something related to that would be non-negotiable because frankly, you you know it from running a business and getting out there and building something and trying to get work, you have ups and downs. And I'll tell you what, when you're having the downs, if it's fun along the way, it does, it takes, it takes some of the strain away. I think when you enjoy being around. But look what that's just done there, that conversation between the both of us there, Ollie. Look how we've suddenly found common ground. So yeah. the idea of we've found that we both share that, that value of treating people with kindness and decency and, and being humble and then having a bit of fun means that now we go, well, can we work together? Can we be effective? So we've removed yeah. some of the ambiguity and found some common ground that says, well, maybe we could do something together that becomes an enjoyable experience but makes a difference for others so that's where the exercise can be so valuable because it just removes so much ambiguity from the world we've told each other our standards and now if i was to if you were to see me in a situation where i was being a bit intolerant of somebody you've got almost the permission to say oh damien you said that kindness was an important value for you and i'm not seeing you being kind there is everything okay What can we do yeah. to get you back uh, in sync with the person you are? So you start to see how powerful this stuff can be. Do you think purpose plays a role in motivating you and, and actually is directly related to performance? Because yeah, definitely. I think I've heard various guests on your show talk about purpose and purpose seems some, to some people like this sort of worthy ideal, doesn't it? You know, But purpose doesn't have to be about changing the world or saving the planet. It can be much more related to individual relationships as well, as well as a greater aim, can't it? Yeah, 100%. I think it it comes back to the question that lies at the heart of all of us is, well, why? Why should I do it? And and that's all you're effectively asking is, in, in pretty much everything we're doing, why? Well, and then, so, there's that old technique they use at Toyota, ask why five times. 
So then, mm. so let's again, we like this. Why? So why have you started a podcast? Well, I mean, to learn a lot and meet new people. Okay, and why that do you was, want to learn a lot and meet new people? Well, to go back to one of my non-negotiables, I'm just curious. And I think building relationships is critical to improving your life and building a business. Right. So why, so why would you regard that as so critical and important? Because I know, having done it before, that you can't do it all on your own. <laughs> right. So automatically, again, we've just asked three, the yeah. why question there three times and we're starting to get to a real deeper sense of you're not just doing it to, for commercial reasons. You're not just doing it to expand you reach in the market as much as that I hope is happening for you it's more around I'm doing it because it's just really because I want to do it I get to do yeah. it. I, I, it it speaks to the person that you are so what's significant there all is again you're not doing it so I, you made that point that you're not doing it for sort of to change the world necessarily you're doing it because you want to change your world and that's enough mm. that's as valid a reason as anybody else and I think Will you hit bad times? Is it hard work? Do you have to sacrifice time? Yeah, of course you do. So if you're going to keep going through that, you need to have a clear reason of why why on earth am I doing this? So I think purpose applies for all of us. And I think sometimes we it's like that phrase, the tyranny of business. We can often get caught up in being too busy doing to ever stop and think about, hang on, why am I doing this? What's What's the reason behind it? You touched on something there, and actually, it is a really interesting lens through which I look at the motivation to do the podcast. Because I tell you, what, it is a bit of a grind sometimes. It's like I write a newsletter every week as well. That's bloody hard work. Like thinking yeah. of something, writing it every week. However proud you are of what you've written, and frankly, I wouldn't publish something if I didn't think it was if it was decent. You still cast a critical eye on it and think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But you do have to have, I suppose that's where grit comes in, doesn't it? Relentlessness in some degree is probably a characteristic, again, of high performance. Is that right, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Because I think there's there's this concept in psychology called Cantor's Law. It's named after a lady called Rosbeth Moth Cantor that says, everything always looks like a failure in the middle. So whatever you do, whenever you set off writing your weekly newsletter, there'll be a stage, I guarantee every week where you go, oh, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm writing, I'm not sure I can be bothered. We all hit it, do you know what I mean? Like whatever it is that we're yeah. doing, whether it's we're doing a diet plan or an exercise regime, there's always a bit where it becomes boring or we don't mm. see the results fast enough, so therefore we become despondent or we're not, we're not, we start convincing ourselves that maybe we don't have the capabilities to get where we want to do. So cancer's law applies to pretty much every project you take on. So how do you get through that messy middle that Ben A. Brown talks about, that difficult bit where you just need to grit your teeth and get on with it? Well, that's where resilience and relentlessness comes from, the ability just to put one foot in front of another and do that repeatedly until you gain some degree of momentum. So absolutely. But again, that's not... Again, our definition of high performance, if we go back to it, is doing the best you can in the moment you're in with the resources you have. So that might be getting your child to do well on the, um, like to study for French. And I mention that because it's topical because my son, we're trying to convince him to do that uh, at school at the moment. But, but the, there is a degree of relentlessness required for it that you have to get them to understand. This stuff can be boring. Don't hmm. don't get caught up in the outcome of hoping you get 10 out of 10 and the exhilaration of that. 
the work in the shadows is the bit where you just need to be relentless and apply it and the consistency of doing the same thing over and over again. I liked yeah. Clive Woodward when we interviewed him on the podcast was really good. So he took a, the concept of a value, translated it to a behavior and then translated it even deeper to a, to a very tangible um, element. So he spoke about the idea of respect, that whether this is self-respect for your own craft, your own fitness, or whether it's respect for others and things like that. And he went, nobody's arguing for the opposite of being in a culture of disrespect. But you go, okay, so let's take respect. What does that mean? In relation to meetings and the players when being on time. Because to turn up late for a meeting would indicate that your time is more significant than, than anyone else's. So he believes that one of the foundation stones of England's success under his coaching regime was the 10-minute uh, the before a meeting rule, what became known as the Lombardi rule. So arriving for a meeting 10 minutes before it starts was the standard that they expect. Because yeah. that shows a respect for the person that's hosting the meeting, the respect for your teammates, but respect for yourself that you're coming into that environment and giving yourself the best chance of getting the most from that meeting. So that's something that is in the shadows, the consistency of applying that kind of mindset every day, every meeting, is what they felt built the foundation stones of their respect for time in the last minute of a World Cup final. They respected that 60 seconds is a long time to be able to utilise this to be able to win it, but it's the re endless repetition of it, and that's boring. And nobody, yeah. wants to, and nobody wants to acknowledge the boringness of it, but so what's the personal trait we need? Resilience and relentlessness. Yeah. It's so interesting. Whenever I hear anybody talking about high performance, there's almost a compounding effect of these small habits or practices cultural things which are engendered within a team or individually i remember was it toto wolf he was talking about in his first day uh, arriving um with his <laughs> first up on mercedes he noticed dirty coffee cup or dirty spoons which had been discarded on the so side it was a coffee cup right yeah yeah it was yeah, a coffee yeah. Cup she spotted. yeah that's it it was reflective of sloppiness i'm, I'm paraphrasing here no no you're right yeah but if you pick up on that, though, Ollie, what he was saying, what bristled with Toto was that they were talking about attention to detail as one of their values. Mm. We pay yeah. attention to detail. Right. So what he was pointing out was the lack of consistency. You say that right. you're world-class at paying attention to detail, and yet I come into your reception area, and you've got two-day-old newspapers and dirty coffee cups still lying around. So what you say doesn't mirror what you do. So you don't have the habits that back up the standards that you're telling people you apply. And you know as well as I do, we're wired as, as a species to spot hypocrisy. You mm. spot people that talk a good game and don't quite back it up. So what he was doing as a leader was coming in and saying either, either increase your standards or lower your expectations. And he saw the coffee cups as a brilliant metaphor of a simple habit of yeah. just tidy up after yourself. Just put your rubbish in the bin. Just yeah. remove your coffee cups. That's attention to detail that is going to, the compound interest, as you say, or the scaffolding effect of everybody doing that then creates a culture where you don't miss little details that are going to cost you in competition. There are times when you're in that messy middle and you feel that 
things are tough and you can't really see what the reward is. Yeah. But because reward and recognition do feed into a positive mindset, you know, you have to get yourself through those difficult times. But at the same time, we all feed off recognition and reward. In fact, if you look at many of the reasons that people leave jobs, you know, up where with financial considerations, it's often recognition. Yeah. And, you know, recognition from managers about their performance and their contribution to the team. So how do you find the right balance between those two things? Trust in the process, but also all of us just intrinsically needing that type of reward. Well, you're right, first of all, Ollie. It's a really smart point, again, that you're making, that when we talk about recognition, that you use that phrase there, intrinsically. Intrinsic motivation is one of the, is one of the most powerful elements that I've heard people say for us on the after they'd listen to the podcast and they go, oh, I wish I had Aunt Middleton's drive. And you go, okay, well, that, but you, let's break down what does drive mean? Because you're describing it as if he was born with that trait of being driven. Mm. And that's not necessarily true, but equally what the point is, is it's not that it's something you've got or you haven't. It's a trait that you can develop. So then you say, so you go back to this idea of intrinsic motivation. Look at the uh, the DC and Ryan stuff around self-determination theory. So what's going to keep you going for longer than somebody that's rewarded just by external factors of the bright, shiny things is um, control, autonomy. They talk about the sense of belonging and relatedness. But the third factor is what you're describing, recognition or reward or being seen to be competent or something is a big part of it. So then if we understand that, we go, so how, the point is, if you're going to trust the process, which again is a great phrase, but you go, what does that mean? And it's the idea of trust the small steps. So reward people for the small things done well regularly than just wait to load all the reward on the outcome of hitting it. Yeah. Because, so take a really ridiculous metaphor. If like an easy way of explaining it is that say somebody wants to lose weight, the easiest way of hitting your weight target is to cut off a limb. You can achieve, you'll hit your weight target overnight, but you'll cripple yourself in the process of doing it. So what you're saying is actually what I want to do is lose weight in a healthy, sustainable way. Right. So now we need to go down to the process. Let's look at your eating habits. Let's look at how often you exercise. Let's look at how you rehydrate, how you rest. And then it's about building in rewards for all those small things done well regularly. So then, so it's about doing small and regular rewards rather than loading it all on one big outcome-driven one is a big part of it. Mm. There are so many theories around management and self-motivation. For example, I had a really interesting chat with a guy on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the evidence that having a few, you know, like less than three big goals in life helps you achieve you know greater reward and greater performance and i and i believe in that sort of the north star i've got this ultimate objective that i want to achieve but of course the nature of those big goals is it takes bloody ages to get there i'd be interested whether you've got any suggestions about how we build in some uh, opportunity to recognize the good work that we are doing rather than it being something we receive externally think about the way we set targets for ourselves so if you think about it in really simple terms there's the outcome performance and process stuff so for anyone not familiar with it the outcome stuff is what you just described as your north star that's the stuff that you want the person you want to be the the the, the difference you want to make 
And that's all very emotional and personal and, and, and it can often be hard to quantify. You know, I want to feel great about myself or I want to be seen as a great dad or whatever it is. That's a feeling. So, but you, you will have your definition of what that looks like. What we then do is we go down to performance targets that says, let's come at this from a logical point of view. How do I measure it? So what are the stats, the facts and the figures that would tell me that if I do that, I've, I've, I've achieved the outcome. And then the final bit is then you go down to what you said earlier, the process, the small steps that we do. So give you a really simple example of it from when we talked to Dina Asher-Smith on the podcast. Dina Asher-Smith, her whole ambition is about sort of, um, she wants to be seen as, as a symbol for young girls here in the UK that like you can break the glass ceiling. You want to be seen as a role, an inspirational role model for young girls. Okay, so that's an outcome stuff. The performance stuff says, well, to do that, I want to be the world champion at 200 metres. So when we go to the next world championships, you can stand on the finish line and you can very clearly measure whether she comes first or not and gets a gold medal Mm -hmm. around her neck. But what she's then focused on is doing five track sessions a week with the coach, John Blackie. She then focused on going to the physio three times a week. She's focused then on her nutritional and her daily fueling habits. So what she's doing is she's rewarding herself for all of those small things done regularly. And that comes from regular reflection, building in time to stop, have a look, have I done that well enough, can I do something better? So you're constantly refining the process that keeps her following that North Star of making sure that by the time she arrives on the start line for the 200 metres World Championships, she's in the best physical shape she can, which by definition will help her achieve the outcome of inspiring the generation of young women that look up to her. So there has to be that complete alignment all the way through. You can't be you can't be working on like you can't be there's that great saying, I, I think it's Covey that says it of you can't climb the ladder to success to then find out it was leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah. That you need to have that alignment to say you start from the outcome, the stuff that gets you out of bed on the morning when you don't want to do it. How do I measure that? And then what what are all the small steps? So a really simple way is when I sometimes do it with young people, you'll say to them, What do you want in life? Like, what's your outcome? What's the what's the big dream? And some young person might say, Oh, I want to live in a mansion. I want to have a million pounds in the bank. I want to drive a Lamborghini. So rather than sort of dismiss it, you go, Okay, that's fine, that's great, that's your ambition, that's what you're telling me excites you. What kind of job do you think you'd need to do that would afford you to have those kind of aspirations to live that kind of lifestyle? Go and have a look at it. So rather than just say that's what you want and make it vague, what kind of work do you think you'd need to do? And they might come back and go, I need to be um, a top lawyer, for example. And you go, and and I like law, so that's what I want to do. Right, so we've got a performance target now that you want to be Mm -hmm. a lawyer for one of the big six law firms in the country. Right, now let's get down to process. And eventually you go, are you doing the right subjects for you? Are you working as hard in those subjects as you're possibly capable of doing? Because to get there, you're going to need to have some pretty good grades. So are you maximising it? And what you often find is that they might have the dream and the aspiration, but their process of what they're doing isn't aligned to it. So you go, well, either change the outcome or change the process. That's the bit that you get to influence. But So you can break everything down by either start big and 
then distill it down to the small stuff or start on what you're doing the small stuff and ask yourself, is that going to lead you to the big stuff? So you can go at this either way, but that's how I'd advocate doing it. And do you think the people you've worked with and come across who you define as being high performers have always been really conscious of that process? Dina Asher-Smith, it sounds like she's very clear in her mind about what she wants to achieve. Yeah. But does it happen by accident with some people? Yes and no. I'd say for some of them, you might have, it's almost like I'm in a shot of coffee on a morning when you're tired. It might give you that prompt. So your talent might give you the incentive to work harder at that talent. But at some stage, you have to make a very deliberate choice that you're going to go after it. So nobody is a high performer by accident. You can be lucky once, you're not lucky twice or three times, that you have to sustain it. So at some stage that you have to then decide to learn the craft of what you're doing and you're open to new ideas. And I'm not saying they all follow the same formula, but I'd say that they all follow the same pattern of at some stage they they recognise that talent isn't enough. I interviewed a guy years ago, a guy called Chiki Bagirdestein, who was a director of football at Barcelona. And he had a great phrase that said, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. Your behaviour will decide if we keep you there or not. And the point he was making was, you'll get to a level, as all our high performers do, where everyone is as talented as you. Everyone is as fast, as fit, as strong, as smart as, as you are. So what then makes a difference of sustaining it is you then have to go that extra mile. You then have to then make that commitment that you're going to stop doing some things to be able to focus singularly on others. Mm. So, yes, there is a certain element of of fortune at the start, but that can only create a certain degree of impetus. After that, it's very much a conscious choice to go after these things. Just to follow up on the Barcelona point, so you wrote, you wrote a book about Barcelona and their high-performance culture and presumably spent a lot of time thinking about what, collectively made them at that point the greatest team and and actually has cre- ended up creating you know the greatest footballer arguably ever arguably the greatest football manager ever in Pep Guardiola with those unique talents clearly hard work would have got them there but there are some people who are just destined for greatness hard work always plays a role but you have to find the thing which you are uniquely good at to reach the very top. Is that a fair description? Or do you see people just getting there through pure determination? I think we all follow our own path on this, but I think what you're describing there, though, Ollie, is that we all have strengths to play, and I think it's about finding what you're good at. So, again, if we go to one of our interviewees on the podcast, um, Joe Malone. Joe Malone's Mm. a great example of a question that we ask people is uh, not how clever are you, but how are you clever? So the interpretation of a question by an educational psychologist called Howard Gardner. And the point is that Jo Malone left school with no qualifications at 15. And she said that her teachers would have regarded her as a below average student. So that if we apply that question of not how cl- So if you ask the question, how clever are you? She'd say, well, if you look at the track record of how society defines education, you go, not very but if you ask the question, how are you clever? She'd go, you know what? I had a strength of having this amazing ability to create really beautiful fragrances. Mm. And I then learned how to make that a commercial product. So you go, so 
society doesn't test on a on an exam your ability, your olfactory function of being able to to create great smells. So the point is that you, we all have strengths. The Howard Gardner's question of how, how are you clever leads us to the question of multiple intelligences. And he says there are a, some educationalists say there are a lot more, but some of those qualities are interpersonal skills. Some of them are musical gifts. Some of them are physical gifts. Some are social gifts. Some are numerical, some are verbal. But the point is, everybody's clever, but we're all clever in different ways. So I think what all our high performers have done is uniquely find what they're clever at, what are they good at, as well as what do they enjoy and what do they love. And then they create a world where they play to their strengths. And I think what you're describing in your question is, yeah, I think that is consistent with high performers. So it might be, you might have some, say if you take the football example, like Carlos Puyol. Carlos Puyol, by his own definition, was never the greatest footballer uh, in that dressing room at Barcelona. But what were his strengths was, he had a decent level of ability, but he had a, but he was gritty and he was determined and he was resilient and they were his strengths. That was his ability to unite a disparate group of people and bring them as a cohesive whole. So he found a role for himself where he could play to his strengths in that environment. So his talent got him so far, but his strengths of being able to unite people was what distinguished him. I'm interested from your point of view about what you see as your strengths and how you identified them, and maybe when, because I know you've written a few books now. The podcast, it appears, has just blown up it's huge obviously your relationship with jake is resonates with people but also the way you both interview people you mentioned joe malone she really opened up didn't she in a way which i think she'd said she'd never done before i mean presumably for you maybe you found what your strengths is getting people to open up is it would that be fair <laughs> yeah maybe i think I, I i have a quote above my desk um that serves as almost a tripwire. So it's a daily reminder of this stuff. But it's a quote from a guy called Bill Bullard that says, opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it requires no suspension of ego. The highest form of knowledge, what he describes as, is empathy because it requires you to step outside of your view of the world and see it through somebody else's eyes. And I think what, if I have a strength, I'd say that I'd that I think I have a strength of trying to be empathetic where you can try and step into somebody's world. I'm not a big one for, mm. for offering an opinion. So when people say, oh, who did you not like on the podcast? You go, well, that's an opinion and it's irrelevant. I'll tell you who, that all of the people I've met, I've tried to see the world through their eyes and try and understand, mm. well, why did they make the decision? Because that's the important factor of what we're trying to do. So... I think that's been a strength of mine of, of, of trying to be empathetic and see the world through other people's eyes and try to understand that decision-making is a big part of it. I think I'm curious as well. I know you mentioned it as one of your non-negotiables, but I'm, I am curious. I, I, like, I like talking to people and asking them questions to understand their decision-making process or their thought process or what shaped them in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'd say, I mean, when I left the corporate world, so I did a corporate job for a few years and, uh, 
I I was a fish out of water. I think what I found was that I went in it because I thought I should do it. So I'd work, I was working as a boxing coach um, and I was sort of going to night school at uni and um, I'd sort of qualified there and everyone was talking about getting proper jobs and I didn't know what a proper job was. So I applied and went and joined the corporate world. And uh, I did it for six years, but I, I I was almost like a fish out of water. That I, I sat in meetings and couldn't understand why I was there. I, I actually wrote a book in one of the board meetings I used to go into to give you an idea of how bored I was. Um, but I, yeah, no, <laughs> I can say that now because it's been a long time after it. But I think. Um, I was sort of, it, I, I was a fish out of water and I realised I wasn't playing to my strengths. I'm not somebody that can sit in a meeting room and talk about abstract ideas for very long. I like being out there and doing it. So when I left the corporate world, I was frightened because I'd sort of, I'd found myself getting a bit institutionalised <laughs> well, even in the short time I was there. And I remember setting myself uh, two really simple process goals when I did it. I'd noticed that I'd been in the habit of on a Sunday night, I used to go through my diary for the week ahead and look at what was uh, what uh, what I had planned. And I noticed that for a long time, I'd do an internal groan on at least one of the days where I'd look at it and go, oh, I can't believe I've got to do that. Oh, I'm not looking forward to that. So my first process goal was I would I wanted to have a, a, have a career where I look forward to every day. So there'd be something that I would be doing that day where I'd go, oh, I'm really looking forward to that. So today, it's me and you chatting is something that you go, oh, okay. And then the second thing was the idea of doing something where you feel you can make a positive difference. So going back to that trademark behaviour of, so both of them were about having a laugh, being kind to myself. I felt I, 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 was, I wasn't being kind to myself by doing a job that, I, that I'd become stale in. And then also doing something where you felt you could make a positive difference. So they would like my small goals of saying, I'd look in my diary on a Sunday night and find something to enjoy in every day of the week that I was doing. You've got loads of great phrases which lodge in your mind that you and Jake use on the podcast, but this thing about being clear about where you're going, but flexible about how you get there. Yeah, yeah. really resonates based on the conversation we've had today because... I think if I was to summarize, if you're not clear about where you're going, it really is difficult to implement those small steps, isn't it? Because you feel that it's directionless, but actually equally being pragmatic and realistic that you're not going to take the right step at every single stage is also pretty important. Um, So thank you for sharing those ideas and for joining me this morning. I've really, really enjoyed it. Really good to chat. Oh, it's been a privilege to come and chat with you, Ollie. And like I say, I know I appreciate that I, that you're on the other side of the fence from me at the moment, but I'm often on your side where I know how much hard work you invest into a podcast. I know the preparation you do and all the sacrifices, uh, other priorities that you have to make to do it. So, you know, thank you on behalf of uh, myself or all your listeners because I think you're making a real a real impact with this and it's been a treat to have the chance to come and speak to you good man cheers Damien cheers okay. and that was my conversation with Damien Hughes what a thoroughly lovely and super smart guy 
Personally, I learned loads from listening to Damien and could have carried on talking to him for hours. His new book is out tomorrow. That's the 9th of December. So look it up if you'd like to read more about the high performers we discussed during the show. Next week's episode is the final one of the series. And we're going to be looking to the near future with Draw Gurevich, founder of Velocity Career Labs and the Velocity Foundation, which is reinventing how career records are shared across the global market. They call it the Internet of Careers. Until then, please make sure to check out the newsletter for more thoughts on the future of work and subscribe and rate this podcast if you haven't already. Until next week, have a good one.